Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Paul Bennyworth from the University of Twente, who's one of the authors of The Impact and Future of Arts and Humanities Research. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Paul Bennyworth, who is Senior Researcher at the Centre of Higher Education Policy Studies at the University of Twente in the Netherlands, about a book he's a co-author of called The Impact and Future of Arts and Humanities Research, uh, which came out of a, of a very big project thinking precisely about uh, the impact, future and value of the arts and humanities uh, in, in Europe. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today, Dave. Um, I think we might start by just giving the listeners a sense of um, your research work, your kind of research agenda, and how you came to be involved in this this big question about the impact and future of arts and humanities? So my research uh, has always been interested in the value of knowledge for society. So I started out doing my PhD at Newcastle University. And really what I wanted to do was to understand why the Northeast was changing. So I, I come from the Northeast of England and I grew up at a time when the Thatcher was closing down the industries. And it was a it was a terrible time. There was a huge amount of devastation and dereliction. And from the 1990s, there was some, some gradual efforts made to try and improve things. The Tyne and Weir Development Corporation were involved. They were investing in, in business parks. They created the Center for Life. And I really I wanted to study that. And if you're working in a region like the northeast of England, in terms of modernizing the economy, there aren't many actors who are really doing that. And so as I was, as I was studying for my PhD at the Center for Urban and Regional Development Studies, I came across the work of Gareth Potts who was doing a PhD at the same time, looking at the role of universities. And it's, it, the, the, the theme of universities gradually bubbled up in my PhD as, as representing a source of potential growth for uh, a region like the northeast of England. And I, this sparked in me an interest in how universities were contributing to society. And that is that has move forward in a variety of iterations. Now, I've never really been interested in the things like the Oxford or the Cambridge phenomenon, where you have a world-class university in a thriving economy, creating new high-tech business, high-tech startups and spin-offs. I've always been interested in the kind of the places that get left behind, the communities that get left behind. So I was, um, I was working on an ESRC project that was looking at the role of universities in socially excluded communities. And that really started to highlight some of the barriers that even very well-meaning universities can have when they start to try and create benefits for the communities that are, that are ha- uh, experiencing problems in the context of the knowledge economy. And so I've that that's kind of been the light motif of my work, looking at these difficult cases. And I'd, I'd already started to do some work looking at arts and humanities research, because that's a, a, a a very good example of a difficult case. It's hard to understand how arts and humanities can contribute to society in the kind of instrumental discourses that policymakers are now using. And so really, it was in about 2009, two things came together. There was my interest in the value of universities for society, 
And then there was the, a, a group of arts and humanities research councils across Europe had come to the same conclusion about about this public discourse uh, that the the way that humanities was operating it was seen outside of the academy as being very stuffy, as being very uh, self self satisfied, unwilling to justify itself. And in particular, the research councils in the UK and the Netherlands and Denmark had tried to bring humanities research councils together to create a new future research agenda for what if you were to create a, a dynamic humanities research environment in Europe what would that look like and they, they they call this network the humanities in the European research area so what how could arts and humanities research create European added value in the way that we saw for example in nanotechnology research or energy research where there was an assumption that you would that academics would work across national boundaries on these large projects of national interest uh, and not find it strange to be working with all kinds of social society partners and they they managed to get some money from the European Commission and they put together this uh, joint research program and I, I was looking at this and I was reading the call for it really from a research perspective because this I thought well perhaps I can study this but it became clear to me that the one thing that they'd taken for granted in this was they had a very simplistic idea of the public value of arts and humanities research so they said that it had value but it the there was the risk that they were going to get drawn into the trap of assuming that arts and humanities research value was small projects that fed into a very limited segment of the creative industries and ultimately would lead to a dissatisfaction amongst funders, amongst policymakers, because of the relatively limited scale of the impact. So you had – I was interested in value. You had HERA. And so I put together this proposal and called it HERA Value for which was a, a European research network to, to study this issue of the public value of, uni of arts and humanities research more widely, really out of my own interest to understand if, to understand this, this really quite complicated example of how knowledge can create value. Because if you understand how philosophy can benefit society, it gives you insights into the various ways that, for example, uh, biotechnology can benefit society without necessarily reducing it to the production of drugs. You've cleared the ground really, really perfectly, actually, for um, understanding the the story of the book. And I might ask kind of two questions to further develop what you've said. The first thing is, is why are we actually asking this question? What is the public value of the arts and humanities research? You know, what, why are we asking that now? Um, and then obviously allied to that has been the rise of various um, both research and also kind of public policy and public discourse agendas around the idea of research having impact. So I wonder if you could, yeah, sort of tell me a little bit about what impact is, what it means, why we're kind of talking about it, but, you know, um, also illustrate that why is this question, what's the public value of arts and humanities research being asked now? So the, the, the first question was, what, why are we asking this question of what is the public value of arts and humanities research? And it's the, the, mo the first thing you, that you have to understand about asking this question is that it, it's not, in the case of arts and humanities question, a neutral question. No, the starting point that people have taken in the public sphere is not tell us all the good things that you're doing because we're interested to hear them. 
Anytime this question get asked has been asked in the in the general public policy sphere, it has been a question of the form. Tell us how arts and humanities research is doing is contributing as much to society as the, the proper sciences. And if you don't, we're going to cut your money. Because the, the, what, we've, what we've seen is that there has, a discourse has emerged in public policy that science is useful and that science can easily and quickly point to the kinds of benefits that it creates. And the arts and humanities, for a variety of reasons, produced a very unsatisfactory set of answers to that question. So it's almost as if it's a reset examination for arts and humanities with a lot of pressure being put on them. Now really tell us what you're doing, because if you don't, then we're going to you're not you're not doing proper research. The so the what we've seen is that the. The, the, the first round of answers that were produced. So Eleonora Belfiore, she's traced the way that people have attempted to mobilize a set of arguments for the intrinsic value of arts and humanities research, where people say that society benefits simply because the research is being done. And that, for a variety of reasons, is a very unsatisfactory answer, because it's difficult to make a logical decision between that being true, or distinction between that being true, and you saying that because you don't want to, you don't want to have to justify the value that you create as an arts and humanities researcher in return for the value that you receive. But the consequence of that has been to change the way that the question has been answered. So the question has always been answered under pressure. And the fact that the question is being put in a pressurized way, now justify your value, has skewed the debate and produced a, a series of reactions where we've seen, for example, people contesting the terms of those asking the questions who they've assumed that it's an attempt to impose a new type of a new type of logic around the decisions that are making made about what kind of research is good or not and the where the the so policymakers and this is so this is where HERA really came from as a research network. Policymakers in arts and humanities research were aware that this was taking place. So they've attempted to reframe the question in a more positive way to construct a, a an argumentation that is acceptable to the arts and humanities research community, that, but also acceptable to the policymakers community. And that, we, when we started the project, we, we were expecting to find that this would be relatively uncontroversial, that the structures would exist, that, that would emerge, there would be discussions and dialogues that would produce a common view around what the public value of humanities research was. But what we found was that that, that stabilization process didn't happen. So what we ended up tracing was we attempted to, to to take a step back and to tell a more general story about what was happening in terms of the way the different kinds of ways that arts and humanities research was creating value. Yeah, and, and this this gets done really neatly in the book um, in both a kind of an explicit way by thinking about national case studies, Norway, Ireland, yeah. and the Netherlands, yeah. but also it gets done in this. Uh, I suppose, more meta way about thinking about why we even engaging in these um, both questions, but also practices of, of demonstrating things like impact. And I think we, we, we might have a think about two questions before we turn um, to the kind of substantive 
empirical engagements that are in the book. The yes. first is the institutional setting for all of this, yeah. which is the university. And one of the things that the book does in the introduction is kind of set out uh, almost a kind of a history of institutional change um, yeah. in the form of, of the emergence of, of, I guess, kind of new university practices. And I wonder if you could say a bit about actually what's the institutional setting for these discussions has been and how the university has changed maybe since the 1970s. I think one of the interesting things is that people assume that there's some kind of heyday of, of higher education where it was an ivory tower and people were simply allowed to go about their business. And it was a, a better science policy scholar than me that pointed out that the universities since their creation have always served a societal purpose and they've always had a societal funder. And it was uh, – it, was it Pope Pius Thirteenth who created the University of Paris because he needed a seminary for training priests? And so he created a special class of priests, the prebendary stipend holder, who that turned into what we would think of as the, the lecturer, uh, simply because the Pope needed a highly educated uh, elite in order to run his – in order to run the, the, the Catholic – the Catholic Church hierarchy. And since then, we've seen the, the university has always had this kind of sponsor dependence. And that has affected the, the institutional structure and the way that it, the way that that is um, the way that the university carries out its function. And the in the 1970s, the, the there was a huge amount of emphasis was put in in universities across Europe in using them as a means to open up and democratize society. So in the 1960s, there was a series of protests. People think most famously of Spain, uh, sorry, of um, France and the May 1968 revolts. But that, that kind of student activism related to uh, labor strikes sparked a whole wave of unrest across Europe and North America that led to an opening up of the of the institution of the university. And it became seen as a place that was about educating a mass democratic elite. Sorry, a mass, a mass democratic society. So previously, universities had been about creating elites and where they'd been associated with societal opening, it had been about creating new kinds of elites to run those societies, whether industrial or political. But now it was they were seen about giving giving everyone the tools that they needed to function in an increasingly open democratic society. So obviously, the big change since the 1970s is that there has been an increasing individualization of the way that society and societal value is viewed. And inevitably, that has had a an impact on the way that the university functions as an institution, because it's the 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 way that the the, the way that uh, the way that the public sector articulates what societal interest is has changed. So there's become an increasing emphasis on the role of the university in giving individuals the tools that they need in order to live yet more effectively more productive lives and this has had this has had a differential disciplinary impact so it's much easier for uh, for the disciplines that can point to the fact that they give functional tools to individuals to go immediately into employment that they can they're doing research that leads to the creation of patents, licenses, spin-off companies. It becomes, in these new circumstances, much easier for them to justify the value that they've had. And so when you have a whole set of disciplines that have, have become embedded in a kind of consensus that their value lies 
in enriching the individual to flourish in a democratic society, that then makes it quite difficult for them to start to mobilize arguments about how they are contributing to individual attempts to enrich themselves. Because a lot of the a lot of the kind of the tools that arts and humanities research creates, the understanding, the reflection, the critical voices, they create second, third order benefits for society. And it, it becomes much harder to point to those second and third order benefits when other people who are in competition with you for scarce public resources are able to say, we create highly educated graduates that earn a lot of money, that set up businesses, that generate taxes and lead to economic growth. And so the, 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 the contemporary university has become a place where the arts and humanities research is, be, it's un, is facing a series of pressures to behave in ways that don't necessarily lead to the optimal public benefits because those second and third order benefits are still there. And we, we point to them, we're able to point to them in the empirical case studies, but they just, in the context of the public debate, they become much less compelling, much less convincing to policymakers. And so what we've been, what part of what we've tried to understand is precisely why that has been the case. Why have policymakers been so resistant to arguments as to the, that the value cut from arts and humanities research comes indirectly. And it, but again, again the, the idea of making a positive contribution to public debate, that's quite a vague concept. Certainly, it's a lot more vague than creating a spin-off company that employs 300 people. But there's, there's the second issue about economism, and hopefully we can kind of drill into this in a little while, that the 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 first order benefits, the financial benefits, the economic benefits, they're something that's relatively easy, easily enumerated. And they're also something that is uncontroversially positive. So if you, if you create a, a spin-off company and it employs people, then you can point to it has a, a spin, you know, it creates, it adds a hundred thousand pounds to GDP per employee, generally speaking. And everyone, all, all the major political parties buy in and say, that's a good thing. That is unambiguously positive, but a lot of the a lot of the, the apparent societal benefits that come through things like critical thinking, their public value is politically constructed. So there is there is a consensus that economic growth is good, but there is not necessarily a consensus that the all communities being able to articulate their interests in an equal way is good. We perhaps. Ten years ago, we might have assumed that was the case, but we see in the rise of all kinds of populist movements that there are political parties that seem to seem to feel that the the critical reflective tools that arts and humanities research brings to society actually have a negative value, and so even in a, a well functioning democracy democratic system it's much more difficult to point to things like the value of critical reflectiveness. As, a, as an unambiguous social benefit, because not all political parties agree with the consequences and outcomes of that. And you see in countries like Canada, where there's been a very, uh, there was until very recently a very strong political attack on uh, researchers who were seen as doing research that had positive value viewed from the left, but not from the right. That's the that that's a an issue that a lot of policymakers see as being above their pay grade. They, they know what good research is because it's, it has an, uh, an unambiguous positive 
uh, value as articulated in pounds. And all of this kind of woolly stuff around critical thinking, that's just contentious. So we'll, we'll, we'll rule that out. And that has had, that has had very negative consequences in the first instance for the kind of reception that attempts by arts and humanities researchers to articulate the value of their researchers had. And nevertheless, organizations like AHRC and the British Academy have put a huge amount of effort into trying to articulate stories that have a more neutrally positive tenor, you might say. So the thing, the, there's this great example of, uh, is it the Black in Britain series that's currently running at the moment? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So rather trying to rather than trying to justify that in terms of the the the, the voice that this gives to subaltern communities, something that I think you and I would see as being unambiguously of positive value, you can. The, AHRC has pointed in the past to things like the number of of uh, viewer hours that particular programs attract. You can see they have you know a million people watches them for an hour, and you can attract that has a, a value leisure time has a value of six pounds. So you attract a kind of putative price to it, and when you start to do that, you start to see that even taking a, the, it's a it's it's slightly problematic. But even doing that, the kinds of benefits that relatively small arts and humanities research projects can be huge and they might they if you know if you get a, a literally a million people watching a tv program that's that's far more effective um that, that has a much bigger economic effect than a, a single spin-off company can potentially have and that but that's kind of quite a leap of faith because yeah, a spin-off company you can your politicians can go they can cut a ribbon they can open a science park but it's it, it's much harder for them to take the, the credit for the investment that leads to a researcher doing a piece of research that eventually gets taken up uh, into TV programs. So obviously things like the um, the Radio 3 New Generation Thinkers that make that, make that link much closer, uh, those kinds of schemes are, are very positive in trying to make these fairly indirect benefits look much more like direct benefits. But it's also something that the book, I think, identifies quite well that many arts and humanities practitioners and discourses are quite uncomfortable with as the way they tell their story and the way they narrate their public value through this um, kind of set of, of kind of economic uh, proxies. And I, I wonder, as a way of kind of getting into some of the nuances and, and maybe, you know, differences amongst um, the arts and humanities communities that the book studies, whether you could talk me through... Um, some brief examples from the three case study sites of, of Norway, Ireland, and, and the Netherlands. Yeah, I mean the, the the issue is that the the impacts can take place on different scales. So in all three countries, we were able to identify examples of the of researchers who had had profound intellectual influences on their national on their national political communities. Uh, in, and in the case of Norway, on the international political community, uh, always as a kind of second or third order influence. So uh, the, in, in Norway, for example, there was a, in the 1970s, there was a philosopher, Arne Nors, who developed what we now think of as deep green philosophy. That is to say, thinking about the world, it's the, the Gaia model as an integrated holistic ecosystem in which humanity should, in order to understand the welfare of the the ecosystem you need not to privilege humanity's position within that now that it, it, and it, that was developed as a very 
uh, yeah, a very what you'd say academic philosophical position, very abstract. But through the work of the Limits to Growth and contacts via the Club of Rome, it suddenly became a way of articulating a political philosophy that increasing numbers of people were willing to embrace. So you saw in Germany in the 1980s when you were getting acid rain and the deaths of rivers and the deaths of lakes, people were desperately searching for an explanation that that didn't simply say we should, you know, we should put more filters on the end of factory chimneys. And through, particularly through the world, uh, through the work of um, the Brundtland Report, you see that the, the ideas from Arnas were taken up and became integrated into a political movement. Um, it, although I said he was abstract, he was himself relatively politically active in Norway. Uh, but it, these ideas become taken up in national political communities, international political communities, and form the basis of what we now think of as green uh, green politics, something that's now seen as being in the mainstream in many countries. So I think it's about 10 million people at the last Euro parliamentarian elections voted for political parties that have political philosophies that derive from the work of this very abstract Norwegian thinker in the 1970s. And that, that reflects the... the the peculiarities of the Norwegian system that get that's enabled someone to spend devote a huge amount of time thinking about a topic and that without really being pressured into to, into delivering it, but it at the same time shows that even where we think that humanities professors are living in ivory towers, the what determines the usefulness of that research for society is it whether or not it is taken up. And the a lot of the, the kind of the the problem the problematic you, you alluded to the resistance that emerges from humanities scholars is where they feel that they are being forced to take their research and sell it before it's ready. And some of the, the, the stories that we, we gathered were able to show that sometimes it's precisely the time that it takes to ripen the the, the understandings are precisely what's necessary to deliver that usefulness. So in the, again, there's a similar kind of story emerges in Ireland, where Philip Pettit, who was a scholar of republicanism, was invited by President, uh, Prime Minister Zapatero in uh, Spain to try and produce effectively the, a second democratic revolution, a sort of new republicanism. So Sp the Spanish democracy had been cobbled together very quickly in the 1970s, effectively more concerned with preventing a resurgence of Francoism than producing a coherent state, a, a coherent uh, functioning constitutional democracy with equal rights. And so Zapatero was very keen to ensure that groups that he felt were falling through the net um, so the, in, a, in, a, some, in a constitution that was still... In, very strongly influenced by its the, the Catholic roots of the country, the, he wanted to create a, a political program in which the produced a, a new constitutional settlement reflecting more pure Republican values. And so Philip Pettit came. He he'd made contact with Zapatero in opposition. He was invited in to give advice. He was part of a commission that uh, monitored the Zapatero reforms, and. Um, gave feedback at the end and so you could see that his very abstract work producing the kind of the yeah the encyclopedia of philosophy 
definition of republicanism, you saw this very abstract understanding being implemented in um, in in, the, in a particular constitutional setting, very very successfully in particular areas, particularly around rights for for, sing, for unmarried women. Um, in the, the case of the Netherlands, there's a much more interesting, a, a, a kind of a different example when the uh, the Dutch Institute for War Documentation was brought in to study the catastrophe around Srebrenica, where the uh, Dutch for, Dutch soldiers were supposed to protect Bosnians, Bosnian Serbs in an enclave, and the, the enclave was captured by Serbians by um, Serb nationalists, leading to a massacre. And this was a, a profound psychic trauma for the Netherlands. There's still the, on the, the the day of remembrance for the massacre, it's still a, a big national event, uh, a huge amount of guilt. And so the Prime Minister Vim Koch at the time asked the the institute to undertake a study and to allocate to try and work out what had gone wrong um the the institute had come out of uh, another attempt to work a mass a significant psychological trauma that of collaboration with the nazi regime during the occupation and the implementation of the holocaust in the netherlands and that at the neot the name of the institution institute had built a reputation as a, a dispassionate documenter as a great as a basis for understanding and coming to terms with an extremely traumatic past, and so they were invited to to, to bring those skills of dispassionate documentation to understanding um, the, the the massacre that took place, and they came with a very damning report that um, that, uh, that said it that the 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 trouble the the problem came from the top, a lack of clarity from the mandate that the government had given the the Dutch soldiers, and the government drew their conclusions and, and resigned. And that was about the time of the murder of Pim Fortown that led to a, a kind of hysteria around, um, the, uh, around the leftism out of control. And it, 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 the, in the election that followed, it led to a, a fundamental shift in the nature of, uh, of Dutch politics, a kind of m- making populism po- possible. And that that's quite... That's kind of the the something that that's why I, I I dwelt on earlier the the problems that emerge in arts and humanities research because it can sometimes have effects that are seen as undesirable by particular groups because of the the, the because of the way that their value is politically constructed but still it's you know, the fact that the reports this piece of research changed the course of the the, the, the Netherlands I mean it, it also formed the basis for the kind of the really coming to terms with um, and owning up to and the acceptance that this the massacre it was the fault of the Dutch government and the, the kind of the, the moral reparations that then had to be made uh, to because of the debt that was then owed to the the Bosnian Serbs and uh, so the, again there's a very strong positive claim to be made and but we were worried in the the book that we what we ended up was producing a story is that the way that you create Research impact is to know a prime minister, of, or be invited by a prime minister to do a piece of consultancy, and what? What at the, at the same time we were able to point to a huge number of initiatives where interesting things were taking place, and quite often where you'd not expect it. So I think it was Charles Clark in the UK in two thousand and two. He evoked this idea of a kind of medieval scholar who was looking at things that was only of interest to it himself and two or three other colleagues and they publishing articles that one or two other people would read and we really had a hard look to find those kinds of people and we just we literally couldn't find it 
So almost everyone within within two or three degrees of separation, there was a, there was some kind of substantive impact taking place. So you, the, the way that abstract philosophers were working with applied philosophers who were working with the decisions that were taking around the funding of a nanotechnology program in the Netherlands, for example, or people who were doing very abstract – this was in the UK – people doing very abstract linguistics um, who were approached by a UK intelligence – a US intelligence agency to, um, if, to, to understand if they could produce – an analysis of material that was coming out of the Middle East, and you, they, you know, that was all of these kinds of these signals. Society was continually giving signals um, that humanity's research had a role to play. The society didn't always know until it gave those signals that humanity's research could help. But our, our research project uh, was, for example, running when there was the massacre in Norway in Utøya. When um, Breivik, the gunman, went berserk and, and killed, I think it was eighty innocent young um, political activists, and that was that. The the politics sort of threw up their hands in, the, in their era and said, "Well, how can we explain this?" And a whole set of humanities scholars sort of mobilised a, a kind of an impromptu public sphere debate about about that. And then at some point, the, the, the research council was saying, we want, to, we want to allocate funding to researchers on the basis of, of the, the social value that they create. And there was a, in the newspaper, a professor wrote a, an article that said, um, this is completely alien to us. This is not what we're here for. And what was interesting was it, it, it sparked a, a response or a series of responses from professors who'd been involved in, amongst others, the response to Utoya. And they came out and said, "Well, hang on, you say this, but this isn't. This is not an. This is not a fair representation of what we are." And the, the interesting thing in Norway was that we found that there was two types of professors who had very sta stable identities about their researchers, and they had very. They were very comfortable with the idea of impact, and there were the, those who were who saw their role as to do the expert research and to then present it in a way that someone else could take forward and then there were others that were constructing it together with partners in a kind of co-creation um, and the they were that was also a very stable they saw themselves as being blue sky pure researchers who worked very closely with societal partners and creating impact happened and it was related to what they did but they didn't feel it as a constraint on them and that it was the we found that in different articulated in very different vocabularies in the in the different countries that we studied and that was that was for us um that was for us very pleasing and it, it echoed for example what um mike kitson found in the uk with his a, you know, a, a with his survey uh, of of all academics to what extent do they have an uh, an academic an I, academic identity as pure researcher and how far do they work with social partners and although arts and humanities researchers had often the identity of very pure researchers, they were also amongst the group that worked the most with societal partners. And societal partners, working with them, is a sign that someone is interested in your research, is going to use it. It's the kind of the first step on the journey to creating the societal capacity. And so I think the, what, as well as this story about the massive impacts that it can have, we, would all, we were also found corroboration across a number of Euro European settings 
that arts and humanities research was actively creating value for a huge range of communities in a, through a, a wide variety of outlets, signalled in a variety of different kinds of ways. Uh, and the the idea of the ivory tower academic was the exception, if not the norm. And even if you had a few academics in ivory towers, their work was forming the basis for others who were intimately involved in in creating in working closely with social partners to do things that were interesting and or value to those partners. And this, of course, is precisely the the new definition of the public value of the arts and humanities that. Um, the, the conclusion to the book uh, grapples with, yeah. you know, this sort of reframed, empirically reframed vision of what an academic researcher is and what they do, but also gesturing towards um, a reframed, you know, public understanding of, of their yeah. practices. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the so our, our definition of the, of public value is, that it, it gives society capacities to do things that are valued by people. And the, the, the academic researcher creates something that is then taken up by a user and the user then, the, that then has influence in a broader network and sometimes it can it ripple out to the scale of a society. And so the, that, there is a, but there is a sense that that is there's a generational shift is taking place that you are now starting to see a lot a lot of academics moving into senior positions for whom that kind of way of working is not controversial the perhaps in the 1960s there was a more a more Mertonian view of academic excellence in the humanities that emerged out of the struggles that humanities faced then to say that they were rigorous and excellent, and so this this kind of ivory tower mentality, or an ivory tower retrospective justification of what you did, was within was seen as being a way of demonstrating excellence. And I think what you see is that there is a, a growing awareness amongst academics that academic excellence is not incommensurate with the creation of public value. And, of course, the value that the public then brings into it in different kinds of ways by making resources available in various different ways that can also influence, enrich, benefit the research. And that can be explicitly through the use of co-creation processes, working with uh, specific community engagement. But it can also be the kind of the, the informal dialogue that takes place uh, or the, 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 the way that social dialogues can influence the, the academic discourse, and obviously in literary criticism in the UK, a, a lot of the influential discussions that take place, you would say, are formally outside the realm of academia, but they are still influential for the way that uh, literary criticism research takes place and is also taught. So the these the uh, I think people are starting to realise that engaging with society and having these societal dialogues can have an enriching effect as long as the academy retains its capacity and sense of self-worth and what it means to be a good researcher in the, so that creating impact comes out of doing good research rather than being an end in itself. That's probably a really good place to, uh, to conclude the discussion of the book, actually. I mean, we, we've, 
we've only really scratched the surface of what's in the text. I mean, there's a long engagement with the concept of innovation. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about impact assessments. Um, you know, it, it's a really rich, really fascinating text that I think speaks to a whole range of different um, audiences, both in terms of kind of stakeholders, but also um, cross-nationally. And, you know, I, I think it's an important uh, book for um, for almost kind of everybody uh, to read. But I think as we draw to a close, it might be interesting to hear what you're working on now in terms of, you know, you, you carrying on this interest in universities, um, in public value, in knowledge production, um, or are you going in a sort of a totally different direction? Well, I think what I was taken by w- w- at the end of the project was just there were this issue of the engagement with publics and the the degree to which publics, different kinds of publics, public experts were starting to take was was were making these material contributions to the research activity. So you, you could have you'd be doing a science cafe around linguistics, and someone someone says something to you that sparks you to take the next step in your scientific career, and it so it becomes clear that that the role of publics in scientific production seems to be quite interesting. So they have. I've started to move towards looking at citizen knowledge communities and their interaction with academic knowledge communities. So at the moment, um, as I said, I I like to look at difficult cases because I think if you understand the most extreme cases, it gives you a pro, it gives you models that can or heuristics that can help you understand the simple ones. So I'm interested in how citizens mobilise to create knowledge about controversial uh, controversial environmental planning questions. So where, for example, public authorities or big companies say this is safe and they say, well, and citizens come together to mobilize to try and create an argument that the and to mobilize their own knowledges in order to contest in the the, the sphere of expertise. So how can citizens become experts? And that we're very grateful to the um, Economic and Social Research Council and the Dutch Scientific Organization for funding that. And that's kind of the I've been lucky to get some money that takes me in that direction because I, I think that um, citizen knowledge is a yeah, it's the trying to understand how we as academics interact with society and also the relationships that we have. Studying citizen knowledge helps us get beyond the kind of a transmission model, the sort of the, the, the pipeline that we create wisdom that is then taken up. And we can think more about the ways in which we have interdependencies, interdependencies with other, other academics, interdependencies with public intellectuals, interdependencies with citizens as part of this increasingly knowledge based society. Thanks for listening to New Books of Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Paul Bennywer one of the authors of The Impact and Future of Arts Humanities Research, which was published by Palgrave in 2016.